Welcome into the Trevor Staub Show, episode number seven. Today we have a very special guest. We've got Chris Dickerson. Uh, we're going to talk to Chris about his season so far, what he's got going on, his transition over to Discraft. We're also going to talk to him about the path that he took to professional disc golf because I think he's got a really good strategy and some advice on on how he accomplished that. But without further ado, let's hop right into the interview. All right, I'm here with the 2020 U.S. champion, two-time Pro Tour championship winner, and the recent Open at Belton champion, Chris Dickerson. Thank you so much for joining the show, Chris. Yeah, thank you for having me. So you're in Texas right now, just wrapped up with the win at Belton. Uh, have you gotten a chance to take on the course for Texas State yet? Yeah, I've practiced it. I think today would be the third time. Um, it's a little different than last year. Yeah, I was actually, I got the opportunity to fly out there last week to give it a try. And I thought it seemed, I've, I've played Dogwood, which has been played in the past, and then got to try out the new hybrid. And it seemed like a lot more uh, open holes, obviously. Um definitely more of a more of a uh, scorable course I thought what have you kind of thought about it in relationship to what you've played in years past um I prefer more technical style uh, of play especially after the last three weeks with Vegas Waco I mean Waco's a little bit in the woods but it's still really windy so Vegas Waco and then uh, Belton has just been pretty open um, constant winds. Mm -hmm. It's been really windy. So I was really looking forward to, uh, having a tournament out of that wind, yeah. but, um, the layout for the course is it's fine. Um, it's not a bad layout, but it's, it's open and it's windy. So, uh, we've got a fourth course in a row. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely true. Uh, when I was out there, there was like a wind advisory and we noticed it just as soon as we got into the wooded holes, it was almost like a relief because we just had a break from it. Cause not only is your disc getting just destroyed, but it wears you down just being in the wind for that long. And I'm sure after all these events constantly, it's been, you know, it's quite a mental battle to overcome. Yeah, it can be a little bit, like you said, it kind of wears on your body just as much as it is like um, it's harder to throw headwind shots. You've got to throw a more stable disc, throw them a little bit harder. So Yeah, definitely. Well, just getting into last week, because obviously you had uh, kicking off your season with the win there at Belton, um, went pretty much wire to wire there. I wanted to talk a little bit kind of how you were able to win that, gaining that lead early with that hot round and kind of holding on. Um, what I've noticed is in disc golf, there really is – you know, with three round tournaments, there's definitely a trend of golfers going out and getting that hot round early. And then it's kind of a mission to try and hold on to it. Um, but there's a lot of golfers that do struggle with that in the disc golf scene right now. But something that you've been able to do throughout your career, I feel like, is when you do get that early hot round, which you do quite often, you're kind of able to hold on and go wire to wire and get that win. It's kind of similar to what you were able to do when you won your U.S. title, where you kind of had to fend off the rest of the field. How do you kind of approach that from a mental standpoint? Because getting out to an early lead and knowing that everybody is targeting you is, is definitely a daunting place to be. How are you able to kind of gather yourself and carry that momentum and, and keep the task at hand in mind? So for me, with uh, it could be a three-round tournament. It could be a four-round tournament. Um, after you start out with the hot round, you know, you're, you're not going to win the tournament with uh, – a good score on the second round, but you definitely can lose the tournament with a bad score. Um, so that's, that's really all it is. You're not going out there to try and win it on the second round. 
Um, but you also don't need to go out there and think, I'm just going to try to not lose. Right. Or um, um, You don't need to have it in your mind. Um, what if I blow up? What if uh, I just shoot a slightly below average round? Um, so for me, any round other than the last round, I'm just going out there. I'm playing the course um, how I intend to play it. Uh, stick to my game plan, things like that. <clears throat> Whenever the last round comes around, um, probably going to start out the last round the same way, mm-hmm. uh, well, with the same intentions and stuff like that. But then later on in the round, you've got to kind of change your game plan a little bit depending on where you're at compared to other people's scores and what the last few holes set up like and things like right. that. Right, that's what I was wondering because there's a lot of players in disc golf, it seems like there's so many players who have the mindset of, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but they have the mindset of no matter what happens, my strategy stays the same wire to wire. Like I'm not going to change anything I do because I don't want to risk trying to enter, you know, cruise control, so to say, and then, and then give it up. But then I think there, there needs to be a time when as a player, you get to those last few holes and you don't need to necessarily think I'm taking it easy, but you have to make smart course management decisions. So you're saying for you, it's kind of, you know, you try to play the same way, but then as you kind of get down towards the end, then you kind of change up your decision-making to just play with whatever lead you have. Yes. And, um, there will be times where, um, you'll kind of get away from your strategy or your game plan, um, early on in the tournament or midway through it. Um, for example, you could be put in a situation where, um, you hadn't practiced from, you could take a bad kick and think, you know, I can still, get to the green and try and birdie this. So, you know, that can either really work out for you. Um, it could uh, give you a bogey, but, um, yeah, coming down the stretch, you, you need to have good course management. Like what you said, not necessarily stick to your game plan. Um, but you need to always do what is comfortable. Um, so for example, holes 17 and 18, um, I knew what the score was. I knew I didn't have to birdie uh, both of those or either one of them. So <clears throat> on 17, uh, it's just a par four through a sidearm out the gap. Um, that green. So a lot of people like to throw the hyzer kind of into that green, get the little bit of a skip yeah. up. But w- what's bad about that green is if you don't hit uh, the flat before the hill, you can roll down into the out of bounds. Right. And I'm, there are some times where if you throw the perfect shot, you still can. So um, that kind of goes back to what I was saying. I had that upshot. Uh, the two rounds before, I had thrown the overstable skip shot. The last round, um, I went with a straighter disc. I threw a buzz. Um, I just tried to go through a smaller straighter gap right. because I knew uh, it wouldn't come in on that hyzer. And even if I did hit those trees, I should still have an upshot. Uh, I was just trying to eliminate the out-of-bounds. Yeah. Definitely. So I was still trying to get the birdie, but I was playing it a little different. Um, still trying to give myself a chance, but I was eliminating the, uh, the big score. Yeah. Basically. So when you're coming down the stretch like that, and cause this is another thing I hear from a lot of players, there's a lot of players who try to block out the live scoring. Cause you know, in this era of disc golf, now the scorecard 
for everybody is really apparent because of what we have with live scoring. So how often and at what point are you starting to pay attention to live scoring during a tournament? Is it something that you're only going to look to when you feel like you really need to, or are you kind of constantly checking? And then if you do want to ignore it, how hard is it to ignore it? Because there's constantly other people checking it and mentioning it around you. Um, yeah, it, it is difficult. Um, and we'll, we'll come back to that. So for me, um, I usually check it just the last round. Um, like I kind of mentioned earlier, it doesn't really matter. Your score doesn't matter until up to that last round. Uh, That's when you need to know what people are doing around you. Um, I even going into that last round, um, or any last round, I kind of have an idea. I keep, um, kind of a watch of what other players are doing around, uh, around me and, or at least on my card. Um, but as far as checking scores, maybe halfway through the round, the last yeah. round, as long as, um, I'm doing kind of close to what I want to do. If I'm having a bad round, maybe I'll check and see like what kind of damage I've done, uh, that far into the right. round. But, um, with, yeah, the technology having, um, the scores basically in our hand, uh, you've got to, if you're the kind of person that doesn't like to see the scores, you've got to keep yourself from looking at them. Um, also, yeah, with, with everybody having the scores at their disposal, uh, they can talk about it. Yeah. And, you know, some people, I'm, I'm one person I really don't necessarily care. Uh, sometimes, most of the time, I'd rather not know what it is until I go to check it. But um, I think it was on hole 17, I just checked the scores. Um, and then... I think Ricky checked him and then he said it out loud. Mm. So I'd already known what it was and he kind of apologized. He was like, Oh, sorry. I, I don't know if you wanted to know or whatever. And I explained to him, I was like, you know, I already knew what they were, but I appreciate it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's just different person to person and what their, um, their mindset is toward that. Right. And it's definitely, it's a, it's a weird dynamic now because players do have the access, but don't necessarily have to see it if they don't want to. Whereas there may be a day where it's like the PGA tour and there's just giant scoreboards that you really can't help but look at. So it's kind it's yeah. kind of one of those things where eventually it might just be inevitable, but it's definitely an important thing to, at some point, like you mentioned, you know, if you do start out not on your game plan or on your pace, you kind of need to know like, okay, what do I need to do? Do I need to start getting aggressive because I've gotten behind in this thing? Or, you know, you got to have to know where you stand, but yeah, it's definitely, definitely interesting how the sport has progressed with scoring, but I wanted to actually kind of move backwards a bit to sort of the start of your disc golf career a little bit, because I think that you took a bit of an interesting path to pro that not many players do take this day, uh, these days, but I think it was kind of a, an interesting way to go about it and probably a smart way to go about it. But just going back to the very beginning, you came from an athletic background and I actually read that you had a division one football scholarship offered to Tennessee tech. Is that true? Uh, Tennessee State Tennessee University. State. Okay, the article was was incorrect. But uh, what position did you play? I was a kicker. A kicker. I f- I figured I because you played soccer. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the double sport. So how much of an advantage do you feel that it was having that athletic background getting into disc golf? Um, it definitely helped a little bit. So for disc golf, I see baseball players being uh, the easiest transition over to disc golf because uh, the sidearm or the four. Uh, the forehand shot yeah. comes so natural. Um, however, 
having a soccer background or uh, anything that really has to do with your feet, um, I felt like I had a better advantage whenever it came to footwork mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So um, used to be, you know, where uh, people would slip on tee pads where they were wet or uh, have not not have good footing on the course and stuff like that. I felt like I was more balanced on my feet and uh, kind of had an advantage coming from yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. Well, the reason I really wanted to bring up your roots in the game is because of your path to pro and uh, at foundation on our podcast and such, we've talked a lot about path to pro and, and how it's evolved because people, even though I've never played professional disc golf, people will ask like for advice on like, how do you think you should approach the professional disc golf route and how you, how do you think you should attack that? And a lot of people these days in the past few years, the tour has been very accessible. You know, it's starting to get stricter now with the tour card being implemented and ratings caps, but Really, as long as you have the resources and the time and were willing to go for it, you could just throw yourself out there. Um, but it, that yep. never really seemed like a good idea to me just because you can get burnt out. And what I always thought was you really should attack your local scene first. And this is what I've told everybody is you need to dominate your local scene before you can do anything. Because if you can't beat the number one tag at your local club, you're going to go out there and Paul Macbeth is going to trample you. So... That's kind of what I always said, and, and you very much had that path. I mean, you started just playing local tournaments around Tennessee, um, just winning, you know, all Heiser's Eve and, and stuff like that. So that's kind of how you started. Then you got comfortable with that and then started to slowly mix in some bigger tour events before now kind of being a full touring pro. So I just kind of know your thoughts on that, like the path to pro and like the pros and cons of both ways and, and kind of how it worked out in your case. So, um, for me, yeah, I started out playing like weekly doubles and just kind of, you know, getting my feet wet as far as the disc golf scene. And I started to see myself getting better and better playing the people around me and, uh, eventually got into playing PDJ events and, um, I played advanced for, I think a couple of tournaments at the end of the year. Maybe there was one midway through the year, one at the end of the year. And then, um, I told myself I was going to play advanced for a whole year. I was going to travel outside of the area and see, you know, um, basically what else and who else was outside of the area and kind of like what you said, compare yourself to, um, people you don't normally play against. Yeah. So I did that for a year. Um, I had pretty good success doing that. So at the end of that year, I started playing open tournaments and um, just continued to branch out, travel a little bit more, play bigger tournaments. And uh, for me, it just happened to work out. Um, and I think what that had to do with was um, the amount of time that I was able to put into it. Um, I was working a job at the time. I would work like three in the evening until – nine, 10, 11, 12 at night, mm. uh, depending on what was going on. So every morning I would wake up and I would be able to go play around early, uh, at like eight o'clock, nine o'clock. Um, and I would be done by 12, be able to go into work. Whereas, you know, most people, especially in, um, when time changes, they run out of daylight yeah. if they're working. In so I was lucky enough to have, um, a job that allowed me to, be able to practice every single day that I wanted to. So, um, I was able to put a lot of time into it. Yeah, definitely. And so comparing those two paths though, like if you were to meet 
like a, a young aspiring pro these days? Is that something you would still recommend to them? Or is there any benefits to kind of just jumping out into the, into the field? It, it depends um, what level you're at. Basically, a rule of thumb that I like to tell people is you need to play in the division you feel like you're competing in. Mm-hmm. Um, or the division you feel like you can compete. So if you are just uh, dominating the intermediate division, but you're placing top five to top ten in the advanced division, the advanced division is where you need to be. Um, Same thing, if you're dominating the advanced division, it probably means you need to be, you need to be playing up instead of playing down. And that, I think playing up will get you further because you're playing against better people um not only does that force you to play a little bit better but you get to watch their shots and um that's one way i really learned uh i saw people throw shots that i didn't know how to Mm -hmm. or that i'd never seen before so um i left tournaments saying like okay well i learned something today so uh playing with better people against better people you're always going to learn yeah, definitely. I do think that's that's actually a great point is um, saying that you want to be able to compete in the division you're in, because I do think the people that play uh, a little bit too far up, I think a lot of times people will jump to a division because they can qualify for it. But mm-hmm. you, if you're thinking about, it, let's say, open versus advanced and yes, I can qualify for open and I'm allowed to play in that division. But in advance, like you need to be playing in a division that you feel like you have a chance to finish in the top five and maybe win like that. That is where your skill level really is, because, you know, unless you're just trying to make a living in the sport and you just have to be playing in open, like at the end of the day, you're trying to go out there to win. Like that's that's the goal of the game. So um, that's definitely it's it's definitely a lot. It's very interesting to see what kind of. Like there's a lot of people these days that really try and rush it when I think that, you know, searching out your local scene, practicing, getting better is just going to be ultimately it's going to take some time, but it's going to lead to a lot less frustration and not not getting burnt out as quickly. Um, But, yeah, I I um, also wanted to talk to you just a little bit about your transition this offseason. Obviously, you started your career with Prodigy. Um, We're with them for a long time and then just recently made a moved to Discraft this offseason with a four-year deal, uh, which was a huge pickup for Discraft, definitely one that not a ton of people saw coming. But um, since you've been with Prodigy for so long, um, how and you've been throwing that plastic for so long, really, built your career on it, how was the process of adjusting to the new molds? So uh, the best way to put it is, so let's say you're, you're with a company, you have to throw their disc. Whenever they come out with a new disc, um, I was always eager to throw that disc. Um, I would throw it on as many shots as I could throughout a round to, to learn that shot Mm -hmm. or to learn that disc and see what it's going to do. Um, it was basically the same process just with a whole new bag. Um, I had a little bit of a head start because, um, no matter who the company is, uh, who the player is, I, I try and talk to most people and say like, Hey, what, what was that disc? Um, just to, know what discs fly like yeah um and i i had a pretty good idea of you know what a force flies like what undertaker flies like a zone um a buzz right quite a few uh i had a pretty good idea of how they were gonna fly so it was just really getting the discs in my hand and uh seeing how they flew for me yeah definitely 
One of the things that I actually, I talked to Katrina about this earlier because she moved from Prodigy to DGA was mm-hmm. when you made that switch, have you found that you were kind of trying to replicate similar shots that you had in your game previously? Or have you found that there are certain molds that have entered your bag that you found with Discraft that now are you have kind of new shots in your bag that you didn't think of throwing before? Because um, it's, it's definitely two ways to approach it. You can, you know, try and find what you had before or kind of I- explore new options in, in your game. So kind of both. And um, I was given a little bit of um, just a tip from Paul. Uh, he said whenever he switched, he was having a hard time trying to replace this that he was throwing. Mm-hmm. And um, just to take the disc as they are and throw them how you know, they're supposed to fly instead of trying to, um, find a, the exact shot that you had been throwing. Yeah. Uh, because you might not be able to do that or you might have a hard time doing that. So I kind of did both. Um, there was, for example, a, uh, slightly overstable putter. Um, that was a shot that I really liked throwing. Yeah. Uh, obviously zones a little more overstable than that. Um, so I, I tried to, replace that immediately and the uh the challenger os mm-hmm. um it just it just happened to work out that it replaced it um obviously they're not the exact same there's a little bit of a difference but that's kind of what he was talking about you've got to learn how that disc flies yeah. not replace um but there were um a few shots that i didn't have before like the undertaker mm-hmm. um I didn't really have that shot before, so that was uh, one thing that I was kind of looking forward to. And um, let's see, was there another one off the top of my head? I'm sure there was, but um, yeah, it was a little bit of both. Yeah, definitely. Um, What three molds from Discraft would you say you've been leaning on the most since your Switch? Three molds. Um, The Buzz, the Undertaker, and the Challenger OS. Challenger OS. Yeah, I um, as the Challenger OS, I know you said you're throwing it. Are you putting with the Challenger OS as well? Yeah, mm-hmm. I found that interesting when I saw that announcement just because it's not super popular amongst uh, Discraft pros. It's really because nowadays it's, you know, mostly guys are putting with Lunas or some people use the original Challenger yep. or even the SS. But I was, it was interesting to find that, that you picked up the OS and that's what you liked right away. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've always liked a putter with just, uh, a little bit of stability at the end for my putting style. And, um, yeah, that there were a few options, but that one fit the best. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, uh, one, one little segment I wanted to do for the end of this show is kind of plays off your nickname a little bit. So for those of you who don't know, Chris's nickname, uh, as coined by Jeremy Colling is robot chicken. Uh, this is due to his robotic way of attacking the course. Uh, and then also your love for chicken and mostly your diet is chicken. Um, so what I wanted to do here on the show officially is get the Chris Dickerson certified power rankings, top five chicken all time right here. Official, (laughs) no pressure (laughs) all time. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I, I had someone ask me about this the other day. So, um, I will say the number one spot, there's kind of a tie at the moment. Okay. Um, it is a 
there's a restaurant in Nashville called uh, Party Fowl. Okay. Their chicken is very good. I would rate it like a 9 out of 10. Uh, there's a restaurant in Chattanooga called uh, Champies okay. Chicken. Also a 9 out of 10. Um, so, yeah, that's tied for first. Third place, I think, would be somewhere around like a Texas Roadhouse. Okay, okay. And, uh, you know, it's not... For me, it's the chicken itself, but it's also, you know, the sides, whatever no, it's else. the experience. Uh, comes yeah. Yeah. Because, like, you know, Texas Roadhouse, unlimited rolls. Exactly. I love bread. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm on board <laughs> with the Texas Roadhouse for sure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there are great places that I haven't uh, gotten to. I just haven't tried before, but as far as like, we'll, we'll jump into uh, fast food for the last couple of spots. Okay. Um, Raising Cane's yeah. is my favorite uh, as far as fast food. And then, you know, Chick-fil-A has got to be right up there too. Mm, got it. Got to throw Chick-fil-A in there. Well, okay. You've heard it. You've heard it here. This is the official Chris Dickerson robot chicken certified power rankings of chicken. Um, I, I'd say it's a pretty solid list. I, I definitely agree. I actually just had Raising Cane's. Uh, when I was in Texas as well, and pretty big fan. It was it was definitely solid. <laughs> um, but yeah, with that being said, Chris, uh, thank you so much for hopping on the show. I know you're super busy practicing, and uh, everybody is gonna be wishing you good luck and hopefully repeating in Texas and getting that win at Texas States. I appreciate it. Thank you for having yeah. me. All right, and thanks again to Chris Dickerson for joining the show. It was great hearing from him on all the things he's got going on this season. And now you know his official power rankings for chicken, and and I would take that to heart because Chris knows what he's talking about. But uh, make sure you check us out again next Thursday. We're going to have another great interview, and we'll see you then.